And you see there on the screen, uh, we are starting a new study today. It's entitled uh, Four Chair Discipling. Four Chair Discipling. We just finished up our series, uh, The Final Words or Jesus' Final Words. They're looking at uh, different passages in John. We start a new series that's going to continue for several weeks now, Four Chair Discipling. You may have noticed on the stage we've got four chairs. Some of you may have noticed, if you're OCD, that they're not centered, and there is a reason for that, so don't panic. There is intention to why they're not centered on the stage. We'll get to that as we start to break down the chairs. We're not going to really look at uh, what the individual chairs look like. Next week, Pastor Justin, as he uh, gives an overview, will explain what we mean by four chairs specifically, uh, and then we're going to look at basically what they are, stages in our uh, journey of following Christ, okay? So we're going to get to those specifics down the road, but this morning as we begin this series, uh, we are going to talk about our mission and our motive. Um, That title for this series, Four Chair Discipling, is actually uh, from a book by the same name, Four Chair Discipling by Dan Spader. Um, Many of you probably know, about a year ago now, at the beginning of, or the middle of May of last year, Pastor Justin and I had the opportunity to take a class at ABC uh, entitled Discipleship and Mentoring in the Local Church, and this textbook, uh, Four Chair Discipling by Dan Spader, was one of the books we used, and so Uh, We were very impacted by just the simplicity of explaining what discipleship looks like and how to have a process of bringing people to maturity in Christ. Uh, And what we came to find was that um, Dan Spader, who wrote this book, actually has several resources. Uh, He has a ministry called Like Jesus, and through that, there's very many resources that we're going to take advantage of and hopefully be able to share some of those down the road. We're actually taking advantage of one of them, uh, in our leadership time at 8 a.m. on Sunday morning. So we're excited to now pass some of this information along as we think about what is discipleship? What does discipleship look like? And so this morning, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about our mission and our motive as we begin this series, Four Chair Discipling. As I mentioned, the focus of the ministry that Dan Spader uh, has founded is called Like Jesus. And it's intended to explain to us how we can make disciples like Jesus. Jesus, of course, is our ultimate example. Um, we know that many times in Scripture, we, uh, many different people will focus exclusively on one aspect of Jesus' ministry. Some will focus on Jesus' message and the words that Jesus said. And of course, we just finished, as I said, that series on Jesus' final words. It's important to look at what Jesus taught and what Jesus said. Some will focus exclusively maybe on Jesus' methods, how he went about doing what he did. And you know, we in discipleship class prior to our current study, we walked through a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism and looked at the methods that Jesus used as he sought to win the world with the gospel and make disciples who would make disciples. Those are important things, the message of Jesus, the method of Jesus, But really, sometimes we don't skip to another aspect of Jesus' ministry, and that is the model of Jesus. That the way Jesus did ministry sets before us as believers a model, a pattern, an example to follow. So as Jesus goes about making disciples, it was with the intention of setting before us an example of how we too can make disciples who make disciples, who reach the world with the gospel and bring people to maturity in Christ. And so as we think about that, we're going to think about this idea of Jesus' model. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
And so as we look at this series, we're going to look at how Jesus made disciples uh, and how we can imitate Christ in that call to make disciples. So he sets before us a pattern to be followed. As we look at his perfect obedience, we recognize that we need supernatural power. Some would look at the life of Jesus and say, well, of course Jesus can do everything he did. He was God. Well, Absolutely, there's supernatural power needed, and we have access to that power if we've trusted Christ and if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is not an endeavor we can do in our own strength. And so we're going to look at uh, Jesus' model of ministry and consider our mission and our motive this morning. So many of you have probably heard this example, or there's a popular video that many of you have maybe seen. I, I don't know if it's been shared here in our church, but I've seen it make rounds on Facebook or different social media, but uh, it demonstrates, it's a great example, a great illustration of the mindset we have when it comes to church. And the illustration uh, is meant to compare what we could call a cruise ship mentality of church ministry and a battleship mentality of ministry. How many of you have seen that video of a a cruise ship versus a battleship? Okay, maybe many of you haven't, a few have, so that's good. If you haven't, look it up. You can go Google cruise ship versus battleship church, something like that, and it's, it's very good. But um, what they use to illustrate that is, of course, when we think of a cruise ship, the mentality is it's about comfort. It's about having a place that we enjoy being. It's about entertainment, right? And so people that have this cruise ship mentality of church will ask questions like, is the service good? Are my needs met? Do I like the music? Do I like the captain and the crew? Is it, a, is it pleasant and comfortable? You know, would I do this again? That's the cruise ship mentality of ministry. It's all about us and our comfort and our entertainment, our pleasure. But the opposite of that, and what I would say is more of a biblical understanding of ministry, is a battleship mentality, right? That we're on a mission. We are together soldiers for the cause of Christ and proclaiming the gospel. And so those that have a battleship mentality, you're going to ask much different questions when it comes to the ministry. They're going to ask questions like, is the ship on a clear and noble mission? Do the captain and the crew submit to a higher authority? Are the crew members equipped to succeed? Are they able to contribute in significant ways? Are they honored for their efforts? So it's a completely different mindset of ministry between we can see illustrated in a cruise ship mentality versus a battle ship mentality. Some have even said that that idea of a battleship actually falls short of what the church should be. It's not even so much just a battleship as an aircraft carrier. What does an aircraft carrier do? It sends out planes to go on mission, and so a church should be almost like a, a, an aircraft carrier that it's sending people out into mission, whether it be missionaries, pastors, or even just lay people as they share the gospel in their local community. And so, This should be the mentality we have of ministry, that we have a mission that is meant to be accomplished. And so, as I said, we're going to talk about what is our mission and what is the motive behind that mission. And so before we dive into our first passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to give us wisdom, to give us insight, to allow his word to speak to us and to make it clear what our mission and our motive should be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. And God, we thank you for, as we're going to see, the commands, the words of Jesus. And we thank you for his methods in making disciples. But ultimately, we thank you that all this is a model. This is an example for us to follow. And so, God, as we 
Hear this call of Christ, this mission that is set before all of us as believers. God, I pray today you would stir our hearts. You would help us to see clearly the mission at hand and to have the motivation to fulfill that mission in not our own strength, but in the strength that you provide. So give us wisdom today. But God, most of all, help us to take the words we hear from you and apply them to our life so that the gospel can be proclaimed, that people can be brought to faith, and uh, not even just to that point as a stopping point, but brought to spiritual maturity, the point where they're making disciples who make disciples. So give us insight into your word and power to live it out to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First passage, as I had you turn there at the beginning, is going to be Matthew 28, and our TV just went out. All right, let's see here. I'm going to click on there. You see the four chairs there. So the first thing we're going to think about is our mission. What is our mission as a church body, as believers in Christ? Well, you see there on the screen, our mission is the Great Commission. The Great Commission we see here in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Let me read these verses for us. We just finished these final words of Jesus series, but here we see some other final words of Jesus as he's getting ready to depart to the Father, and he gives this, this one final command to his disciples. So he says to them in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we see these words of Jesus, this mission that he gives his disciples. And if we profess to be disciples of Christ, this is the mission that Jesus would give to us today as well. Robert Coleman, in the book that we studied in discipleship class, The Master Plan of Evangelism, says about this passage that the mission is emphasized even more when the Greek text of the passage is studied. And it is seen that the words go, baptize, and teach are all participles which derive their force from the one controlling verb, make disciples. This means that the Great Commission is not merely to go to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel, nor to baptize a lot of converts into the name of the triune God, nor to teach them the precepts of Christ, but to make disciples disciples, to build men like themselves who were so constrained by the commission of Christ that they not only followed, but led others to follow his way. Only as disciples were made, could the other activities of the commission fulfill their purpose. So again, as Coleman points out, we see here one primary command in this verse, one primary verb, and it is make disciples. Make disciples, those who would be followers of Christ, but also those who would make followers of Christ. A disciple is one who follows, but reproduces himself. Full maturity in Christ leads to reproduction. And so this is accomplished through those three participles. Go, baptize, and teach. So those all fit under that category, that command of make disciples. The word go could be better translated as, uh, as you go, okay? It's not a command so much as a realization that you're going about life, right? All of you leave home probably every day. You go to work, you go uh, do something fun, you do different things as you're going. So the idea here is as you go, it's a call to action in the midst of your daily activity to make disciples. 
Our lives and our words are meant to point people to the gospel and to be a demonstration of what it means to be a follower of Christ. The second thing we see there is to baptize, right? We're commanded to baptize. Part of making disciples is baptizing them, which is the first step of obedience for a new believer. It's a public declaration and identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We're, we're basically proclaiming to the world through baptism that I am following Christ. I am dying to myself. I am rising again to walk in newness of life in obedience to the commands of Christ. So it's a public proclamation identifying us with Christ. So we're called to baptize those who put their faith in Christ. We're called to teach people to obey the commands, uh, to obey what Christ has commanded, right? Um, Sometimes we might stop at the baptism part, and when someone gets saved and they get baptized, we go, great, just made a disciple, now on to the next one. We think that's the stopping point. But discipleship, as we're going to see throughout the series, is a lifelong journey of growing in obedience to Christ's commands. It's a lifelong journey. It's not just an eight-week course where we go, okay, I got the basics of Christianity, now I'm a disciple, right? Discipleship is a lifelong journey. And so we see here that part of that is growing in obedience to Christ. We're told to uh, teach the commands of Jesus, teach them to obey what Jesus has commanded us. And so there's growing obedience as we grow as a disciple of Christ. It's a very familiar passage uh, here in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Many of you probably have heard even that breakdown of, yeah, the commands make disciples, go baptize, teach. Yeah, I've heard this a million times. But the question is not, do you know the Great Commission? Or even, can you quote this verse? The question is, are you obeying what Scripture says? Jesus doesn't say, teach them everything I said so they'll have more knowledge, right? Teach them to obey the things that I've commanded you. Put them into practice. You're learning for the purpose of growing in obedience. And yet sometimes I feel like we think that being a disciple of Christ means that we're training for some Bible trivia uh, in heaven. We're just, just get as much knowledge as we can so we can pass the trivia, so we can, uh, we're a better disciple because we know more than this person. Now, don't hear me say that understanding Scripture, seeking to uh, memorize Scripture and take it in, th- those are good things. But if it stops short of obedience then it's pointless, right? This is what we're called to do. Teach them not just what Jesus said, but teach them to obey as we're obeying. We're teaching others to obey, and we're growing in that obedience to what what the commands of Christ are. And here's an example of one of Christ's commands, right? Fulfill the Great Commission. Live out, make disciples. So are we obeying this command? Maybe you get intimidated as you hear this verse. And as we give it the title, The Great Commission, we think, well, man, it's the Great Commission, right? And that's for great Christians, and I'm just a good Christian or an okay Christian or an average Christian, right? So this isn't really for me. This is for those great Christians, and we exalt people like pastors or missionaries. Well, that's their job, right? They're the great ones that are supposed to be doing the Great Commission. Well, maybe you don't realize this or not. Nowhere in Scripture is this actually called the Great Commission. This is a title we've given it, and don't hear me say that this isn't a great command of Christ. Uh, Of course, the impact of the gospel going out in this command is great. But what I love about that idea of the phrase, as you go, is that it's really, we could really give it the title, the everyday commission. The everyday commission. Would that be a little less intimidating to us? This is what we're to be doing every day 
as we walk with Christ, as we go to our job, as you go to school, as you go to whatever hobbies you have in life, if you, as you go to church, you're looking to make disciples, preaching the gospel to those who are lost, taking new believers, bring them to that next step of maturity. And that's what we're going to see as we look at these four chairs is that progression of growing to maturity in Christ. So we could see this as an everyday commission. Think about the background of the original 12 disciples. They were not the greatest of the great in their society. In fact, they were very average, very everyday people. There was a cross-section represented of the people of that culture. A lot of different backgrounds, but they all were very common people. In fact, in Acts 4.13, uh, it says of these disciples, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Think about that. They noticed these are just your average everyday people. These are fishermen. These are tax collectors. These are your average everyday people. And yet, man, the boldness they have to proclaim the gospel, the education they seem to have, the knowledge of God's word and living it out, they could tell something was different. And what was different? They had been with Jesus. Jesus chooses a diverse group of men from various backgrounds, all of which were common, ordinary people, just like you and I. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29 tells us about those of us who have come to faith in Christ. And it tells us that not many of us were noble, not many of us were rich or wealthy. We're all pretty average when we think about it. And that may sound like a, an insult, but we see the purpose of that, of why God does that. It says, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God desires to take average, everyday people to save them, to bring them from death to life so that they're growing in Christ, so they're emboldened with the gospel, and as they're obeying the commands of Christ, the world will look on and say, man, look at what God has done. That God gets the glory, not the person. Not God saved this really amazing guy and he used his gifts and abilities. Now God does that and God uses our abilities. But ultimately, God chooses many times the most average of us. Why? So that the world can see his glory as he works through ordinary average people to fulfill his command. So he desires to use you and I to accomplish the mission of making disciples. That's why Jesus begins this command by telling the, telling the disciples that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Right? We're not going out and making disciples in our own authority. Jesus tells them very uh, clearly from the beginning, it's my authority that you're going out to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. So we seek to fulfill the mission that Jesus has given us, not according to our authority, but according to his all-encompassing authority. And he finishes this command by telling them that he is with them always, even to the end of the age. So before the command and even after the command, the, the, the bread, we could say, of the meat of that command is that you're going on my authority and I will be with you. He gives us here the strength to fulfill the command that he's given us. He's not abandoned us on the battlefield with an impossible mission to accomplish, but he is with us, in us interceding for us and will never leave us or forsake us. So this is our mission. Make disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching them to obey. 
this is the mission of us as individuals and of collectively us as a church body. And so are we seeking to obey this mission that God has given us? So we've considered our mission, but secondly, I want us to think about our motive. What is the motivation to accomplish this mission? Well, we're going to see in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40 that our motive is the great commandment. The mission is the great commission. The motive is the great commandment. So flip back a few pages probably in your Bibles to Matthew 22 and look at verses 36 to 40. We see here a Pharisee uh, is, uh, or a lawyer is asking Jesus this question in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second, or a second, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law in the prophets. If you have an ESV Bible or maybe some other version, you see that tagline above that section, the great commandment. So here a teacher says, what is the greatest of all the commandments? All hundreds of commandments. What's the greatest one? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And then he says the second is very similar to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the rest of the laws hinge upon these two commands. Everything else fits under that category of loving God or loving people, or maybe a combination of both. And so our motive as we seek to fulfill the mission of Christ has to be the great commandment, love for God and love for people. As we consider the mission of making disciples, if we don't have this motivation, we will fail in our endeavor. If we don't love God and love people, we will fail. Hudson Taylor, a famous missionary in China, he was the director of the China Inland Mission, And he often interviewed candidates for the mission field. And on one occasion, he met with a group of applicants to to determine their motivations for service. So he'd ask them, why do you wish to go as a foreign missionary? And one of them said, well, I want to go because Christ has commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Another said, I want to go because millions are perishing without Christ. Others gave different answers. Then Hudson Taylor said, all of these motives however good, will fail you in times of testings, trials, tribulations, and possible death. There is but one motive that will sustain you in trial and testing, namely the love of Christ, the love of Christ. So our primary motivation has to be love for the Lord, a love that we've experienced as we've recognized God's love through the gospel and sending Christ to die for our sins, to rise again, to draw us to himself. Scripture tells us we love because he first loved us. So as we understand the love of Christ, we grow in that love for him. And so we have to love the Lord first and foremost. As we looked at the words of Jesus, we saw in, uh, I can't remember if it was John 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there, we talked about how uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so the truth is that love of God leads us to obedience. If we truly love Christ, we're going to obey. And if we're not obeying, we can bring into question whether or not we truly love the Lord. This love is evidenced, again, in our obedience to what he's commanded. 1 John 5, 2 through 3 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments 
are not burdensome. So even as we come to the command that we saw in Matthew 28 to make disciples, if we have a growing love for Christ, we won't look at this command and be like, do I have to make disciples? Do I have to preach the gospel? A growing love for Christ, understanding the love he has for us, understanding his word, leads us to obeying his commands and his commands not being a burden to us. And so we grow in love for God. And as we grow in our love for God, it's going to lead us in lead us to a growing love for people. Some people say, well, I love God, but I can't stand people, right? And maybe some of you have thought that. But the truth is, a true love of God will lead to a love of people. 1 John 4, 20 through 21. John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So true love for God produces a love for people, a compassion for people. When we understand how much we've been forgiven, we look at people with compassion and understand that apart from God's grace, apart from his love for us, we would be in the same state that they are. And so these two motivations, love for God and love for people, go hand in hand. We can't truly love God without loving people. And at the same time, we can't truly love people without loving God. So they're intertwined. As we think about the source of this love, we see in the book of Galatians that love is the fruit of the Spirit. That as we have the Spirit living within us, as we're submitted and surrendered to the Spirit, it's a fruit. Love, love for God and love for people. So this love for God and people has to be our motivation as we seek to live out the command of making disciples. It can't be about, our motivation can't be our power and prestige, our fame and fortune, but love for God and love for people has to be our motivation in obeying this great commission. The Apostle Paul is a tremendous example of this love. We know Paul was a persecutor of the church Uh, And God miraculously in his grace and his love saved Paul, opened his eyes to the truth as he's on Damascus, ready to persecute believers. His eyes are open to who Jesus is. And we know that impacted him the rest of his life, that that love, that experience of God's love led to a love for people, that he was willing to spread the gospel and make disciples fulfill this commission, no matter the circumstances of life because of his love for God and his love for others. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, Paul writes this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul understood the love of God, and as he meditated upon God's love for him, it led him, it compelled him to share that love with others, to conclude that, Well, Christ died for all, so all were dead. And so there's a need for the gospel to go out and reach people, to bring people to spiritual life. And so he had, in his moment of trusting Christ, died to self to live for Christ in his power, his strength, to fulfill what God had commanded him to do. But an even greater example of this love for God and people is our ultimate example. We talked about the model of Jesus, and Jesus models to us what love for God and love for people is. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 to 38, I love this passage. 
says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus looks out at the crowds. He sees the sin. He sees the struggles of the people. He sees all the issues of life. And what does it say? He has compassion. Why? Because they're sheep without a shepherd. He knows that if they hear the gospel, if God draws them to faith in Christ, they can be changed. They can be restored to fellowship with God. We see an example of this in John chapter 4. As Jesus ministers to this Samaritan woman at the well, an outcast of society, someone that really people had brushed off as insignificant, yet Jesus takes the time to have a conversation with her and to reveal to her that he's the Messiah. And her response is to run into the city and to tell uh, everyone there what she knew. She didn't have a full framework of the gospel, but she goes to the people of the town and says, come see this man that told me everything I ever did. Could this truly be the Messiah? She points him to Jesus. And as the disciples come back and they see this interaction kind of wrapping up with this Samaritan woman, in that day and age, they're thinking, what are you doing, Jesus? Why are we even in Samaria, right? We usually go around this area to avoid the people here. And yet Jesus uh, talks about the importance. He had this, uh, this conversation set up in his sovereignty with this woman. And so they're trying to offer Jesus food. And this is what he says in John four thirty four to 35. Jesus said to them, my food is to do, the, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do, not, do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And as he says these words, what do they see? All the Samaritans from the city coming to hear, coming to see Jesus. And the scripture says that Jesus stays with them for two days sharing about who he is and many of them come to faith in who he is because they've heard the words of Jesus. Jesus says, look at the harvest fields. There's not four months till it's time to reap your harvest. The harvest fields are ripe, ripe now. Pray, as he said in Matthew 9, that God would send laborers into his harvest. Jesus looked with compassion at people who were lost and dying and in his compassion for them, and his love for God, he laid down his life to save them and to make them his followers. As we look around our world today, we don't have to look far to see the brokenness of this world. We don't have to look far to see sheep without a shepherd. We can look here in our community and see people who are lost and dying because they have not experienced the grace of God. And so I encourage you, like Jesus did, look at the harvest fields. Look, even just in our community, at the people who are lost without Christ. Pray to God that He would send laborers. And as you pray that God would send laborers, this is not a prayer of God send someone else. This is a prayer of surrender for yourself. That God would send you as a laborer, as a professed follower of Christ, that you would be the means to sharing the gospel and bringing people to maturity in Christ. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We think of the prayer of Isaiah, and this prayer of surrender in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he realizes his sinfulness, he says, I am a man of unclean lips, right? 
And God restores him, and then God says, who, who will I send? Who will go for us? And what is Isaiah's response to surrender? Here am I. Send me. That needs to be our prayer. Here am I. Send me. As we pray for God to send labors into the harvest, here am I, Lord. Send me. When I was a, a freshman and sophomore in high school, I remember constantly as you're in high school in that stage of life, of course, adults will say, well, what are you doing after high school? What are you thinking about doing? What's your career? What's your schooling going to be? And I had no clue at this point what I was going to do with life. And being uh, brought up, in, at least in high school, in a church culture, a lot of the response would be, well, have you thought about ministry? Have you thought about going into ministry, either as a pastor, a missionary, a youth pastor, whatever it may be? And I remember as a, a, a freshman and sophomore, every time that question would get asked, my response was, well, I just don't, I don't feel called to ministry. I don't feel called to ministry. Well, the summer between my sophomore and junior year, I got to go to a church camp in North Carolina, and uh, the, one of the nights, the evangelist that was preaching for camp preached out of Isaiah 6, and he said, here's Isaiah saying, here am I, send me, and he, he challenged us to think, maybe you don't feel called to ministry because you've never made yourself available for ministry. And I remember being convicted in that moment. Have I really ever surrendered my life to whatever God has for me, whether it be ministry or however he wants to use me? And in that moment, I, I prayed and asked God to stir my heart for me to be fully surrendered to whatever his leading was. And in that moment, I believe the Lord was leading me to ministry, leading me to full-time ministry. And so I don't share this illustration in any way to exalt myself. I, I really don't. The point is, have you come to a point where you've surrendered to whatever God has for you? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to call you to full-time ministry. That may be the case. Maybe there are some people in our midst that God would desire to be missionaries or pastors. But we can be assured that God has the work of fulfilling the commission in the cards for all of us. So have you surrendered to being used by God to fulfill the mission that he's given to you as a professed follower of Christ? Have you surrendered? Sadly, today we've exchanged that prayer of Isaiah of here am I, send me, to, well, I'm just, I'm not available, or I'm too busy, or I've got all this going on, so God, send somebody else. We really see the need around us. Somebody really should do something about that, but we have not surrendered ourselves. Maybe you still think, well, I'm just not called. I'm not called to evangelism. This is not my gift. I'm not called to discipleship. I want to leave you with these words from William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. He said this, Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear Him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go, stand by the gates of hell. And hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join hearts and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. The mission for each of us is clear. Make disciples. The motivation is love for God and love for people. The only question left to answer is, have you surrendered your life to fulfill the mission that Jesus has given 
for all those who seek to follow him. Maybe you don't know where to start. You don't know you don't feel equipped. Well, great news. The whole purpose of this series is to find out where you are and how you can take steps in your personal growth in Christ, but in bringing others to growth as well. So we're hoping to be able to equip you. But before you can benefit from what we're hoping to accomplish through this series, you have to have a heart surrendered to pursue the mission of God, the mission that God has for each and every one of you. Look to the amazing love of Christ in saving you. Look to the lost and dying world around you. Hear the command of Christ to make disciples and surrender to God's mission and purpose for your life. Will you do that today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I pray that we would not be intimidated at all by your command to make disciples. Lord, we know that we know that, that is an intimidating command for many of us. But God, you've not given us this command and sent us out on our own. God, you've given us the authority and you give us the power and your presence to fulfill this command. So God, help us today with a desire to to obey what your word says because of our love for you and our love for people. Lord, help us to be surrendered to the mission that you would have for each of us. Lord, to to look at the harvest fields around us, the lost and dying in our world, in our country, in our state, in our county, here, even in our town. God, we don't have to look far to see those who are lost. God, help us to know that Apart from your grace, apart from your love, we would be in that same situation. So God, help us, stir our hearts, draw us to obeying this command. And we pray as we begin this series, we pray for the practical equipping of your people to do that. To find us where we are and to help us to take those next steps in our process of discipleship, but also bringing others along with us. So God, do a work in each of our lives for your glory, for the good of, the, for the good of us, but for the furtherance of the gospel and, and your command to make disciples. And we'll give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.